the RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com. All right, you're very welcome along to this week's RTE Rugby Podcast. Round five of the URC is in the rear view mirror, and we're on to the international window coming up in November. We're going to run through the weekend games that were because we had some decent matches the uh, Interpro derby between Connacht and Ulster at the Aviva Stadium Leinster making a five wins out of five and Munster having their first defeat as well I'm joined I should say I'm joined because it's Neil Tracy here it's not Hugh Cahill Hugh Cahill is uh, phoned in sick early this morning so we've had to make a last minute change and uh, so this is Neil Tracy with you if you're not familiar with me we've got Wes Lizzy as we always do on the podcast and Bernard Jackman as well as well as Fiona Hayes so guys you can call me Hugh if you want today. You can call me Neil. I don't. I don't mind what you want to do. Fair enough, Hugh. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. But look, listen, guys. We'll get straight into it. We'll start with the the games that were on at the weekend, and we'll start, I suppose, with the Interpro as well because that was the the main Irish interest. And Connacht, thirty six eleven winners against Ulster. I was at the game. Like Connacht, Bernard, I suppose. I'll start with you. Was it a case where Connacht brilliant? Were Ulster? pretty bad was it somewhere in between can you can you give us the early thoughts on that you know i think connor were excellent um they yeah they were it's probably their best performance under andy friend um and they didn't allow ulster play i think you know you know you meant dan mcfarland wasn't happy afterwards because there's a real lack of composure in his side and their execution was was horrible but um you know when i had a good look back at the connor's connor's defense and it was outstanding, you know, and and that's been their uh, big weakness of them for the last two or three years. I mean, they had to score 35, 40 points to be sure winning. Um, and it's interesting, the the change in the back room. Peter Wilkins, who was the defence coach, is now the senior coach, um, along with uh, Dewald Senegal. And then, obviously, um, Andy Friend as a kind of a DOR. And then they brought through two Limerick lads, Mossy Lawler and Colin Tucker as as kind of assistant coaches, guys who've come through the academy um, in, in Connacht, having obviously came, came through Limerick Rugby. Uh, and that's the probably the... Well, I, I, I thought Colin Tucker's defence against Munster was very good. Um, but in some ways, I was I was kind of saying, well, the conditions were poor. Munster don't really have an attack. So um, it's easy to shut them down. To, um, but Munster's attack has been motoring quite nicely um, and not just reliant on, on Maul. Uh, tries and yeah, they, they they shut him down. Got three tries from from defensive pressure, which is which is ideal. And then obviously they got a, a lovely set piece try and a phase attack try. So um, a real all good all round good performance. But and, and their line out actually apart from their line out, their line out wasn't where it needed to be, where it should be or will uh, will need to be. But apart from that, it was it was a, a very very strong performance. Yeah, and Fiona, you were shaking your head there as as Birch mentioned, the line-out. Like, it's, it's been an issue with them for for pretty much all the season so far. Yeah, so I, I, I'd actually missed the game, so I watched it back. So um, I was kind of I was kind of shocked to watch the first half to see how they were so dominant without having that line-out functioning. And I thought as well, they had spoke about maybe their penalty count. And I think they'd also given away 10 penalties by half-time as well. So it just goes to show, like, that their offence, everything seems to be taken. And if they can if they can sew up those two areas, you'll be hit with a really, really, really good team. They were just exceptional to watch. And my favourite, as Bernard talked about it, my favourite part of the game is watching the defence. And they were animals out there it was brilliant they just chased Nathan Doak from the first rock I mean he he hadn't a second he was constantly under pressure and he probably hadn't seen that type of pressure and we saw that in the Ulster attack then yeah and feel, and like it, even specific to the defense like the mall defense in particular because that was a, an area with them last year that was like a, a massive red flag that they were just conceding mall try after mall try close to their own line and you look at the amount of times in that first half when Ulster had penalties and decided to go into the corner and set up what is usually a pretty formidable mall from their own part. And they just couldn't find a way through. They were getting a yard or so before the, the you know, the, the mall was just getting held up and they were breaking off towards the side. Like that, those were massive wins in the first half for them. 
Yeah, massive wins. And I, I remember last year, I, I, I'm, I loved that Maldi as well. And, and I gave uh, Graham Rowntree a, a call down in Limerick because I was just, I was amazed how Munster's mall defence had absolutely just uh, come up massive levels. And he was just explaining the little details around tiny things they'd changed in training. And you can see that with Connacht, they obviously tweaked a few things and their setup, their want, I suppose, is another thing to get in there. And it, it, it just excelled in that first half and Ulster didn't have a sniff. Wes, they're the most fun team to watch in the URC, Connacht. Because, I mean, you don't know what you're getting necessarily week on week. I've seen them three times out of five live this season. And, like, you know, it was the the Bulls game, it was the Munster game, and it was the Ulster match. Granted, I, I'm leaving out a, a Dragons game and they were, you know, that they were beaten and where they weren't particularly good. But it seems whether they win or lose, like, either way, you're absolutely getting entertainment. But Yeah, 100%. Um I suppose, like they're fun to watch in, in on, on both sides of the coin because you're you're not quite sure what way it's going to go. But like everyone will go back to consistency now again because you know it's it, it's another win following a loss. But in fairness, the, the performance was pretty good against Munster as well. So it's possibly a little unfair to to point at the inconsistency in terms of performance over the last few weeks. Um, to me, like they're just they're right on the cusp. Like I mean, they're. They're very close to being very good. Um, I thought the I thought the physicality they brought, particularly around in in their attack, like in terms of their clearouts. So just watching the game back last night, the, the kind of huge venom in the way they attacked the rock. Thought Niall Murray was really good in parts. Um, they're yeah, they're 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 a really good side when when it clicks for them. And I suppose two things that kind of jumped out just on what Bernard said was. Definitely great to see two more kind of indigenous coaches getting a, a crack at it. And, and I suppose it was, you know, there was a bit of a, a break of sorts for, for James Collin over in France in that regard the last few days as well. But just looking at, there was a lot of talk about him playing in the Aviva before the game and maybe the crowd wasn't wasn't huge, but the atmosphere was good. And I wonder just is it, um, is doing a kind of double header derby day um, with any combination of the four provinces playing each other um is that kind of something that would be you know obviously they tried it in wales a lot the last few years didn't you know with mixed success but maybe that's something that uh would kind of be another profile boost and another kind of pr coup for for the league and, and for the game here at the minute you know first was that something that was happening when you were there at dragons that judgment day at the millennium stadium yeah no that was a huge part of um of our revenue stream, to be honest, um, all the all the regions did really well out of it. Um, I think was, was it was it po- was it popular? Was it popular? Um, it wasn't popular with the fan, with the hardcore fans, but unfortunately, they were outnumbered massively by the um, the, the casual rugby fan in Wales, who you know love w- w- rugby, love Welsh rugby, um, love the the Principality Stadium. So they sold tickets, and I suppose got addresses and email addresses and contact addresses for for people that they couldn't ever really get a hold of or get into into Rodney Parade and even the better supported franchise or regions like the Ospreys and Scarlets um it did open up new fans people who who wanted to bring their family to the to the principality and look at the tickets were you know they weren't expensive I think you could maybe have a family of four for 60 60 pounds um so it's very reasonable um but the revenue did go back to the to the region. So uh, look, and the players got up for it. This is the big problem in Wales is that um, well, for for the Welsh regions is that they're they're used to playing in front of small crowds um, for you know for the normal or they were for the Pro 14s. So obviously improved now under URC a little bit, but um, for them the idea of getting to play in the Principality in front of 60,000 people, you know, was a was a huge thrill for them as well. So uh, it kind of worked for everybody really. Um, and the idea, obviously, hope is that people go to the stadium to watch the Dragons uh, because it's in the Principality Stadium because they get to watch the four Welsh regions and and they come they, they eventually the following season or, or later that month you know wander into Rodney Parade. I don't think we've seen we've seen that happen, but you know the idea is is, is somewhat logical. Is it something that could work in Ireland? Like I know just from the Connacht example last week, it's not a decision that necessarily went down particularly well in certain parts of Galway. Uh, I'm sure there were a lot of local businesses that maybe felt their nose were put out a bit, you know, losing a, a, a decent match day match day revenue. But 
is it something that could could work in Ireland if you know if we had a, a round of games at the Aviva Stadium some weekend? Yeah, we could do it. Like, a, look, I'd love to get back to the days where a Leinster Munster game would nearly fill it in its own right. You know what I mean? Um, where there's that rivalry and um, level of competition, but unfortunately, that seems to have, have, have slipped away a little bit. Look, at Leinster at Christmas can can get decent crowds, not as many as 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 before in for that European game. Um, so yeah, well, look, I'd love to see a sellout crowd for for two derby matches, but it's it's obviously complicated to to pacify, um, uh, you know, the local sponsors, um, which which obviously tend to do well on match day and, and maybe have you know uh, facilities in the sports ground or in Ravenhill or in in Toma Park, which they can replicate in terms of entertaining clients and things like that. But uh, uh, whatever we need to do to try and open up the game to to more people, I think is, is worth looking at, even if it's not on a on a, a regular basis, but on a once-off. Sorry, the, the, the other interesting one on that that we kind of all forgot about because COVID happened after the vote, but was that the all the rest of the GAA stadiums beyond Croke Park are now essentially available. So, I mean, the thoughts of, like Leinster have obviously moved Munster games at certain times of the year to the Aviva, but the idea of maybe, say, Munster moving a, a Leinster game to a Parky Cueve or a Gaelic grounds or moving a European Cup quarter final there or any of the provinces bar possibly Ulster doing that like that opens up a lot of poss- lot of possibilities as well you know mm, it certainly does I'm feeling it like you're you're Tom and Park neck of the woods how would it go down if if, if you if you were to find out Munster were moving an Interpro away from Tom and up to Dublin. Uh, I wouldn't be too happy about that now it wouldn't go down <laughs> great um look I I suppose it's you know, you can understand why it was done, the, the whole capacity thing at the time, but um, with Toman Park, you know, it's, it's, we've seen, I, I've watched Munster play up in the Viva, I've watched them play up in Dublin, not at the minute that they're much better, but, you know, it's that Toman Park crowd when it gets going, I suppose, it's, it's the home, it's the home thing, and the surrounding areas, the pubs, the bars, everything is, is absolutely blasting, so there's great atmosphere in Limerick, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to be giving that away too quickly. Yeah, and look, in fairness, like a I can't remember was it Andy Friend or who was it after the game, like did kind of when they were asked about it, they did say, look, it was it was a big thing to move the game up there and had the you know they'd put a bit of pressure on themselves by moving a home game up to Dublin. And had they gone out and taken a bit of bit of a beating from Ulster, they might have looked a little bit foolish in hindsight. So obviously that was kind of playing into it as well, and they handled that pressure, but it kind of does. If you look at it, just the stadium and the wide open space, nice firm pitch. It, like, it's a pitch that absolutely just does suit the way Connacht like to play the game, Bernard, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and and that that's definitely something I think that the players bought into. Uh, I think as well we need we need to uh, recognise the fact that that was absolutely must win for Connacht. I mean, Connacht would have expected Munster to win in Ulster or win in Ospreys, Leinster to win in Glasgow. And if they had have lost that game, the other three problems would be on over 20 points and you know they would have had six points. And, and that, that effectively meant European qualification was was pretty much over at this age, stage of the season. So I think we have to understand their mindset and, and potentially, you know, likewise, Ulster maybe feeling that they're a little bit further ahead than they actually were, maybe overconfident and expecting to come down to, to Dublin, kind of giving up home advantage and being able to to go through motions and win. But like from a Connor point of view, even at the table, even look at the table at the moment, that, that loss to the Dragons um has cut put Connor in a very, very tricky situation in terms of European qualification, which is which is one of their goals. And you know, even now we haven't beaten Ulster at home. Um effectively, you know, they're still whatever, eight, nine points, eight, eight points behind the, the the third the third Irish team and obviously have to go away to, to Ulster later on. So mm. They, every game now is absolutely crucial for Connacht, and that's good. It's good to see them being able to perform with that pressure. Um, but I think we need to, you know, recognise that that Connacht were more desperate and needed to be than than maybe Ulster were on the day. Yeah, yeah, they certainly were, and that was something Andy Friend said as well. That like you know, there's a massive difference, even just aside from the match points between a one and five or a one and four and a two and three records. You know, after the the first five games as well. I might just move on to Ulster as well, because we mentioned Dan McFarlane's comments after the game. I'm just going to read out some of them as well, because he was asked about the performance of Connors, you know, where the game was won and lost. And he says, you know, it was really the first half with all the penalties they failed to convert. And he says, 
They defended our mall well in the first half. We weren't able to break them and the guys on the pitch have to put their hands up. It's not good enough. We have an exceptional mall and I don't accept that kind of parity from us. It's not good enough. The guys on the pitch are accountable for that. I know what they're capable of. Is it difficult? Of course it is, but it's not the standard I accept from them. And then just a few minutes later as well, he, he was asked, like, it was a very simple question. I was in the room. He was just asked, like, you know, you learn, you know, people say you learn more from defeats than you do about wins. What did they learn from the game today? And it was a pretty cutting assessment of his own team because he says, what do I learn? Do you know one thing I know about us? We're not good from our favorites. I find that so frustrating. We'll pull monster performances out when we're playing teams like that on paper are much better than us. I'm not being disrespectful to Connacht here. We were favourites tonight, and I don't think we play as well when we do that. To me, I find that frustrating because me as an individual, any competition I'm in, I couldn't give an F whether they're good or not. I just want to crush them. I find that frustrating. Like, he really, really, he really put it out there. He really left nothing nothing to the imagination of what he was saying after that game, Fiona. Like, he, he wanted to make it clear and put a bit of pressure onto his players, I'd say, because he, he had spent a few weeks probably defending them after games when they had won with bonus points, but were making a lot of mistakes. And I think this was the moment now where they had a defeat to, he was actually happy enough to kind of put that, put that mirror back up onto his players and, and show them the mistakes there and then. Yeah, exactly. I think you said it, Neil, it was kind of refreshing to, to see that, you know, I mean, you know, as a coach, when it's time to protect your players and, you know, when it's time to call them out. And I suppose in the heat of the moment, especially after that game, he would have been seriously disappointed. I mean, they were out hungered. They were outworked across the pitch for, for the whole 80 minutes. As I spoke earlier, the 10 penalties in the first half, they just didn't seem to convert. It was just they lacked they lacked line speed. They lacked aggression. We spoke about Nathan Doke. They didn't protect him. Um, Billy Burns, I suppose, on the night didn't offer much. So for, for him to come out and say that, it, it's it's really good. It puts the onus back in the players. And I, I'm sure that bunch of players will absolutely go back to the drawing board and realise that they have to be better. And, you know, for their coach to call them out, and especially in a press conference, it, it's put a bit bit more pressure back on them not on the system they're playing not on the style in the playing but they actually want the physicality and the rugby knowledge of the players yeah and Wesley I mean he he pretty much just summed up what the difference has been between Ulster and that next tier of teams like Leinster or you know the, the best of the rest in Europe as well over the last two three seasons it but I mean we've spent loads of time and and everyone has kind of navel-gazing about like all these systemic issues that say Munster have that prevents them from competing with, with, with Leinster and with the top teams in Europe. But I mean, maybe it's about time the same kind of autopsy was done with Ulster in, in some ways. Like I saw Stephen Ferris tweeting last night between the Ireland under-18s club schools and under-19s camps that are gathering now. There's 96 players called up. There's 12 from Ulster. Um, there's, you know, they've a lot of the advantages that are trotted out that, that Leinster kind of naturally possess. Like, like Ulster possess a lot of those on a smaller scale in terms of having a very large city at the centre of things, in terms of having a very developed uh, network of, of, of feeder schools. You know, at the senior level, like there hasn't been a shortage of funding and there hasn't been a shortage of, of big name players uh, brought in. You know, Dwayne Vermeulen obviously yet to come in this year, so... Yeah, I mean they're they're probably underperforming for a, for a long time now, and and like I don't like it's I, I don't really know. Birch might have a better insight on on how that's been addressed because it, it probably hasn't had the same light shone on it that it has in other places, you know. Yeah, I think um I think they had they had big issues around their academy, but I think Kieran Campbell, who's now moved on, he's he's not a boxer, tack coach in Ealing. He did a lot of work, um, and they. They actually created their own bespoke program, which is different than 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 Leinster's because even though there is private schools up there, um, the the level of funding that goes into them from those schools uh, in terms of coaching and um, and facilities etc. Uh, would be far far less than than what 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 you see in the in the big Dublin or Leinster schools. Um, so they started to take. I try and put an arm around those players a little bit younger um, try and share the responsibility of developing with the, uh, with the schools or, or the clubs. And they have had some success about that, you know, likes of Hume and, and Balakloon and, and Larry, et cetera. There's a, there's a crop coming through Dave McCann, but 
Unfortunately, that's worrying Wesley. That's that, uh, um, in terms of their low representation across the the 18, 19 year old level, and that's um, you know that's 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 not good. You'd like to see an increase in, in those numbers, but look at it is what it is. Um, Kieran Campbell's moved on now, and uh, you'd like to you'd like to think that there's there's some creativity around how they're going to develop the players, and I think that's the big issue for me is that each province should have their own unique way of developing players because they all have very different uh, demographics and um, uh, criteria, not criteria, nuances around around where, where the players come from. But for some reason, there seems to be this idea that a generic model as such uh, would work for everywhere. But I don't think that really understands Irish society. In terms of the short term, Bernard, like obviously we're, bit down in the dumps on them today, but they're still second in the table. They're only a few points back from Leinster. That was their first defeat. And if you're going to have a defeat like that, you know, having a five-week a five-week block of a block of rest leading up to your next game probably isn't too bad as well. Like, they're not in a bad position whatsoever. So in terms of the short term, what do you think they actually can do this season? Bear in mind as well, as you mentioned, Dwayne Vermeulen coming in, in in a couple of months' time. Yeah, look, I think they can turn it around. They're missing Cooney. Um who has been their their go-to guy? Uh, I would I would forgive Henderson and McCluskey for for being quiet. Um, that was their their first game of the season, and and it does take um, you know two or three games to get up to, to speed. They have Vermeulen to to come in. They have uh, Carter who didn't play, who's their club captain. So there's there's um, you know there's weapons to come back into that team or or players who play to get better. Um, Raven Hill is a fortress. Like they'll be there. Look, I I can't see them not qualifying for Europe. Yeah. I, um, can they get silverware? You know, they have to improve a lot. You know, they have had an easy draw. You know, they played Zebra away. Um, they played uh, Glasgow, Benetton, and Lions at home. Um, so you know, they're three five split in terms of home and away games. And as I said, one of, one of the away games is a gimme. Um, and the three home games weren't against top quality opposition. So they have had an easy start. Um, I think Dan 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 was very conscious of what he said post match because he knows they're going away in holidays. He he wants to to set that you know in their mind going away and, and come back and try and fix it. So he'd like to see a reaction. Um, obviously Vermeulen is playing that that Babas game, um, so that's going to delay his his arrival. But he will have an impact, and it's very early days. I mean, um, by by middle of December, they should be fully loaded, and we'd see where they're at then. Absolutely. Uh, we might fly through Munster and Leinster because, you know, we have a, a, a busy month of Irish action coming up ahead of us. Um, but on Munster ways, beaten by the Ospreys, was was that probably was that probably the performance we thought we were going to be getting when they went out against the Scarlets and ended up putting 43 points past them? Was that game against the Ospreys? Yeah, Saturday yeah. Night? But, you know, what, what we actually thought was going to happen a couple of weeks ago. Possibly was. In, in hindsight, the Scarlets were just absolute muck for the last period of time, <laughs> so they probably got away with a lot there. Um, yeah, look, it's probably similar to what you said about Ulster in terms that they're not in a bad spot, um, you know, in terms of the, the wins and loss column. But, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think a lot has really changed with Munster since last year. It's, it's kind of the same conversation we keep having. Uh, Every week with him, you know, is the game going to evolve? Signs of progress. Obviously, Snayman's injury has put a huge dampener on things. So, yeah, I mean, look, I, I kind of, I expect them to kind of trundle along and win four out of every five games they play. Um, wh- whether we've seen to date any evidence that the same problems at the end of the season aren't going to manifest again. I don't think we have, but I don't think we've seen kind of uh, anywhere near enough uh, a first choice settle backline selected really to kind of judge that either. You know, um, it's been it's been a lot of chopping and change, and Dale Ander was away obviously as well. So again, you'd be hoping there's a lot more in them, particularly in terms of their attacking game. But I think, like, like I think that it's been it's been the stat like Connacht are probably the team that have changed uh the most of the irish teams i'd say i, I think like it's th- there was a huge hoopla the first few weeks with the rebranding and the south african teams and all the rest but we've kind of settled back down into very familiar patterns now for right across the league i think 
Yeah, Fiona, what was what was your assessment of Monster Saturday? Yeah, very sloppy performance. I thought Eric Strewn. Um, I I thought uh, I'd say uh, Holly Davidson has gone off John Ryan's uh, Christmas list. Uh, I thought. I looked at, I rewatched the scrums again, and I think she was correct. I couldn't get over the, that Nikki Smith. They were scrummed off the park at times. Very rare to see that in a monster performance. Um, line out was sloppy at times as well. Um, I suppose they were unlucky for that first try. Uh, they were always going to go back and look at it in detail. Um, so you know, stuff that had probably worked in the past around mall setup and that they'll probably have to look at that again if they're really scrutinizing things. Um, I think Andy Friend got it out there that they really need to scrutinize the, the big teams. But look, just in general, um, very disappointing performance. I will say I was excited at times watching Jack Crowley. I thought he tried a lot of things and mightn't have worked a lot of time. Um, but the more game time he gets, um, we'll see. He was just, he was trying things. He was kicking from hand. He was grubbing through. He got a couple of good 50-22. Uh, so it, there is excitement there in that back line, but it's just chopped and changed every week, as Wes said. You don't know who's playing centre. We are talking about Ben Healy two weeks ago. He got a few minutes at the end. I'd love to see them settle down. Um, I know Diolande was away and he's back, but um, it just centre partnerships is somewhere where I, I would be slightly worried about. We we seem to haven't settled on that. I don't know. I don't know who's going to come in. You know, injuries will happen, but it, it seems when um when we play those big physical games, that's that's when we get caught out. And Ospreys weren't even that physical. They were probably just way more up for the game. Yeah, and Bernard, is that a kind of a a knock on effect of the the restructures URC that teams are kind of feeling the need to chop and change sides a little bit more because you know there are less games though obviously less opportunities to to spread out the minutes between players yeah it probably is but uh, like Ospreys had no choice because they um they didn't have the Welsh internationals so uh with with obviously Wales playing New Zealand on Saturday um a game outside a test window the regions had to give up their they're international, so that that paints. I suppose that makes it even probably more damning than to lose to Ospreys minus, um, you know, they're, they're better players or are they international players anyway? Uh, yeah, and, and I understand, you know, Van Graan has to mix and match, um, for sure. But obviously, you expect you would expect a team that goes out to to, to perform, and and that's what the, the the second string or the third string who went to. Scarlets did, you know. I I, I agree with Wesley. The Scarlets aren't aren't going very well, and, and the Ospreys are are were probably set up better to to attack. I thought Toby Booth has done. He, I think he's done a great job. But I thought the game plan um, that they stuck to uh, was exactly what um, you need to to beat Munster on a night like that. Whereas um, the Scarlets obviously want to play a lot of rugby, and and um, that that gets them in trouble quite a bit. So. Um, that pragmatic game plan, you know, Reese Webb just breaking around a rook, just runners off his shoulder, never really putting any wit on it. Um, you know, getting getting domination at set piece, being very regimented in your kicking game, and having a you know a, a, an experienced goal kicker like Stephen Myler to to capitalize on those penalty opportunities. It's it's not rocket science. It's how it's old fashioned Munster Cup rugby, but they did it to they did it to Munster um, the other night. So look at. Again, it's kind of like Dan McFarland. Munster been winning without really, um, you know, blowing the house down. And Leinster, in fairness, you know, I think Leinster from the Dragons game, you know, um, they weren't happy. They got the win, but they went out and, and put in two very good performances since then. And, you know, and that's a sign of a good team. I think, you know, you don't need to lose a game. You shouldn't need to lose a game to realise you're not where you need to be. Um, and I think Munster and, and Ulster, you know, kept talking about, oh, no, but you're winning. There's no there's no problem. Whereas uh, I think Leinster, you know, they realised how poor they were against Dragons. Uh, delighted to get the win and obviously have come out now and had two better performances and won again. And that's the that's the difference, I think, at the moment, just psychologically. You know, I'm sure Munster will bounce back from this, but the really good teams don't need to lose to to understand where they're at. Yeah, and, and quickly on Leinster before we move on to Ireland, Bernard, like they look sharp on Friday night. Yeah, very sharp. They're, um their skill set, their understanding of how they want to play, um, their level of trust in their defence, uh, the physicality. I thought some of their counter rooking um, was obviously something they really focused on to get after Glasgow, and it was very effective. Hasn't been a big feature at other games, so you can see these little subtle changes in what they want to do uh, based around the opposition, and 
look at the they're good. They they should be winning every game in the URC given the squad they have. But um, there's a lot to like about their performance and and the strength and depth they're building up now. You know, with obviously Porter's a loose head, um, they now have a a front row of a sub front row of Keen Healy, Dan Sheen, and Michael Alatoa, um, which is kind of where you want to be to be able to beat you know the La Rochelles, the the Toulouse's, etc. Um, and yeah, I think they're. Look, they're not they're far from perfect, but they're they're motoring along very nicely. Yeah, they certainly are. Uh, let's move on to the Ireland squad because this time last week you were here on the pod and you were probably debating some of the potential selections Andy Farrell was going to be making when he was going to be naming his Ireland squad that afternoon or that evening. He did name the squad Kieran Frawley and Dan Sheehan, the the two uncapped players in it. The the standout headline, Joey Carberry and Harry Byrne are the understudies to to Johnny Sexton. No room for Jack Carty. Um, that the right call, Wes? I'll put you on the spot there. Yeah, I probably would have, like, whether it was the right call or not, I certainly could have seen the logic of maybe why he's been omitted in the past. Like, we've, it's been well flagged in terms of consistency, in terms of, like, maybe going back to... Look, they've obviously seen things in camp with him going right back to 2019, let alone on the field. That, that has soured them uh, on him somewhat, but... You do have to give fellas the room to to change and to improve as well, though. And like to be fair, the way he's playing, but like I know Bernard mentioned it on against the head on Monday night, but like even the way he spoke um, post game after the Munster game, he just seems like a guy that that's matured um, on and off the pitch, that's taken a leadership role, and like. I'm just not sure what kind of a message it is really to, to omit him from the squad completely. A guy on the top of his game like that for one unproven case and one one case of a guy who's, who's let's face it, who's not performing to his potential at the minute in, in Joey Carberry. So, um, like, I, I agree that he wouldn't be starting for Ireland or that he may not even be in the 23, but... I mean, surely you have to reward form at a certain point in a wider group like that. And I think there's other instances of it as well, like less noticeable. But like I, I, I think someone like Jack O'Donoghue's very unlucky not to make that wider group. I think he's found a proper home for himself as a seven. I remember way back when, when he was playing under 20s coming through, he was in the same team as Jack Conan. And he was probably more talked about. But he was always maybe lacking that power that Conan had and it's almost taken them 10 years to kind of repurpose him into a position that, that makes the best of his uh, particular skill set. So I, I think he's a guy that's, that's unlucky as well. There's, there's probably a few more cases too. But like, I suppose the thing, when, when you bring up players who are unlucky, you kind of have to, you kind of have to say, where is he going to fit in? Because like, if you're looking at the list of back rows, you've maybe Tyke Byrne, second and back row, whatever. Uh, Gavin Coombs, Peter Romani, Jack Conan, Caelan Doris, Josh van der Fleer, Nick Timoney. Like, which one of those gets dropped out if Jack O'Donoghue's coming in or like, yeah. or are you just adding in another body, which ultimately might not necessarily be doing anyone any good? You're possibly adding in another body. Um, has Nick Timoney been consistently better than, than O'Donoghue? I'm not sure. He's probably had a couple of more eye-catching moments, but I mean, has Peter O'Mahony been consistently better than him? For two years now? I'm not sure. That's the headline out of this podcast now. Where's, <laughs> where's Lydia is dropping Peter Manny? <laughs> <laughs> going back to the going back to the out half, Paul. Though, like, is Andy Farrell in a difficult position here, Burner? Because we're two years out from a World Cup, and we've probably spent the last two years saying he needs to stop picking just the absolute form player, and he needs to pick. He needs to decide who are the who are the guys going forward long term. Who are Johnny Sexton's understudies? and give them the time to actually blend into the role rather than changing his mind every time an international window comes around. Um, yeah, but is, is Harry Byrne, is, is, is that the bet he should make? Um, if, if Johnny's going to go to the World Cup and it looks at the moment like he, he probably will, um, you know, is Harry Byrne going to get enough games? Plus, obviously, Harry Byrne's robustness at the moment is a, is a, is a question mark. Um, to clearly be be the next guy, and then you've also got Joey in there. So effectively, at the moment, you've got doubts about Joey and uh, and Harry. Harry, in terms of his robustness and in terms of being able to do what you have that ro- you have that robustness 
worry probably about all three of them, to be totally honest, don't you? Yeah, pro- yeah, probably. And and that's maybe why someone like Jack Carty, who um is is fit and ready to go and on form, might have been a nice guy in the squad. I think Jack Carty has been uh, very harshly uh punished or treated for the Japan defeat in the World Cup. I mean, and there's not as if there's any player at international level, even outside Ireland, um, who haven't had a, a, a bad day. And um, but it's how they develop from that. And I think Jack Carty looks to be more mature, um, a stronger leader. Exactly what Ireland need. Like, let's be honest, because Ireland don't have, um, well, from what we've seen, a, a really rigid kind of attacking philosophy or um, clarity around how we shape, how we play. I think the ten for Ireland, their necessity to be a leader, to be a game manager, is more important than it is for for a lot of other teams because it seems to be quite loose. Obviously, this is the way they want to go at post Joe, but it seems to be quite loose in terms of um, how we want to play. So you're really relying on that ten to to boss things, to put people into position, etc. So the fact that Carty looks to have developed that side of his game. Should be a um, a bonus, and let's, and Joey. It's definitely not part of Joey's game. Uh, um, Joey's more instinctive, um, and obviously Harry, Harry may have it, but it's not proven uh, at that level. Harry's um, is probably in there because of his talent as a as a as a passer um, and as a footballer. So it's a it's a it's a big gamble. I think it's a big gamble because you realistically could say we're going to come out in November, not not any way closer to known what that depth chart behind uh, Sexton is, who for me is clearly number one. Um, so that's not really good planning, you know, and then you're going into Six Nations, which we know is the time when Irish coaches have never experimented. Um, uh, and and then you're you're another uh, five months closer to, to, to getting to a, a World Cup. So it, it, I think it's, I think that's the area that's probably just the most spotlight on and and Farrell and, and my cat can, could be proved right. I mean, I, I do think Joey has suffered from Munster's lack of of an understanding of how they want to attack. And obviously, in some of the games he's played, they haven't really been on the front foot. So just because you have a dominant mall five metres out doesn't mean you're on the front foot. Um, so maybe with an Irish team who are dominant in the collisions against Japan or or Argentina, um, Joey will be look more at home. And I hope that's the case because I think he has a huge amount of potential. And I would love to see him, you know, refine that that confidence, etc. That that he, that he had pre-injury. So, um, yeah, there's lots of question marks, and, and I suppose the next month will will tell a lot. I'll put you on the spot here now, Bernard. If you're if you're the Irish head coach, who are the three out halves in in your squad? Um, I, I, Johnny, Joey, and Carty. Not the I think I think with Carty, you have someone in 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 form. Um, ready to go straight away, robust, uh, and that's 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 a good place to, to be. I think to have. Yeah, I think with all three of those, you've got Johnny who's clearly number one. You've Joey who's the heir to the throne, um, and and just needs to, to confirm that. And you have Carty who is buying in form, level of experience, level of leadership that's um, ahead of the others at the moment. And Fiona, I was making the case why Jack Carty mightn't have got selected there a couple of minutes ago. I'm, I'm playing both sides of it here now. So, like, Jack Carty at the moment is 29 years old. He's going to be 31 when we hit the next Rugby World Cup in pretty much the final is, I, I think, this day or tomorrow, two years from now. So he, uh, Jack Carty is going to be 31 by then, which, you know, it's not over the hill by any stretch of the imagination. If anything, you might think it's, it's pretty much bang in those prime years for him. Yeah, it's banging those prime years. And as as Bernard spoke there as well, I mean, we, we saw him. I saw him bossing that pack around the Aviva on Saturday night. He's really grown as a character. He's he's loving that captaincy role, obviously involved in the leadership group. And you can see it. And that's what you want from a 10. And the thing, I suppose the thing I don't understand is, you know, as a coach, you're looking at form constantly. You're really looking at who's in form. And from those selections, you know, other players would be wondering, you know, if I do, if I do pick up my form, you know, will I be selected? It, it, it's, it's, it's baffling to me. I think Jack Carty, I'd say himself was a bit shocked because he said he spoke to, um, to, or to Andy and he told him exactly what he needed to work on. And we're here talking about how he worked on that and how he's gotten to in place of consistency. 
I know some people don't think he's 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 consistent level at when it's the top games every week. But from what I've seen this season, I, I I think he's pulling the strings. I think he's he's getting that part working, and that's exactly what we needed in there to back up Johnny. I'm not sure also about the other two, Joey. I don't know. I'm a big fan, but it, it hasn't happened. We're all waiting for it to happen. It hasn't happened yet. And then, Wes, the next question is, what way is the game time going to be split up next month? Because, like, if you look at the game against Japan, obviously we saw in 2019 how much trouble they can cause Ireland. Then we saw in the summer how much trouble they can cause Ireland. And I think, as was pointed out by someone yesterday, I can't remember who, that you don't necessarily want to be throwing out an experimental team against Japan when you've got New Zealand a week later because you kind of want to be able to, to build up towards that game. And then if maybe one of those two games doesn't necessarily go too well, the temptation might be there to put out a strong team against Argentina all over again to finish off that block on a high. So there could be a situation where like trying to find the, the scope to experiment and to, to try out new things is definitely going to be difficult in this block of games. Yeah, like I suppose you're not really quite sure what way Argentina are going to come. They're, you know, unpredictable, to say the least, in November, typically. But, yeah, I mean, you probably do want to hit out for New Zealand um, if, if, if that's the kind, if, if winning against New Zealand is, is the priority of everything, I, I would imagine you want to go full strength against Japan. And, like, the performances they've given against us the last two times means you don't exactly have freedom to to experiment wildly anyway, if you want to get a result. So I, I think the most you're seeing maybe is, is a deviation of a handful of players from, from the preferred 15 for that game. And then, as you say, those results are probably going to determine the extent of, of rotation against Argentina. And, you know, we're back into the old thing. Then we're around to six nations. There's pressure on, you know, the IRFU prioritise results in the Six Nations financially. Three tour tour test of New Zealand the the following summer as well. Yeah, it's just just slipping away on you constantly. And look, it was harsh for Andy Farrell in the timing of his takeover and running into COVID and etc. But yeah, I mean, we need need to see some some kind of evolution in terms of a clear identity for the team, I think. But... um, are we going to? I don't know. I'm not quite sure when we're going to see that, to be honest. We'll make the call two years out. But like, I did find it interesting, like yesterday, Johnny Sexton saying, for example, that, you know, they 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 are talking, you know, it's not the forefront of the conversation, but there are references to in the World Cup in two years time. So that, that it is being kept on the horizon. And I suppose I certainly found it the most surprising part was that Bernard, uh, I might put it to you, that he was saying in the past, that never would have been the case, that they were always just talking about the here and now, the one step at a time mentality that, you know, two years out from a World Cup, they weren't even really referencing it. Yeah, and um, it's, it's really interesting because the the sound bites you've heard from Joe Schmidt in terms of his review of the of the Ruby World Cup was he actually, he made a, he thinks he made a big mistake a year out talking about the World Cup. So, I don't know if, if, you've, if you've picked up on that, but he basically said that he feels he lost focus by looking 12 months ahead. And uh, historically, he'd always been about, you know, the, the next game, the next uh, opposition. And he felt that that was part of the reason they, they underperformed. So it's interesting now that they're talking two years ahead. So it's, it's contradictive to, to what, um, what, what, what he felt uh, let, them, let them down. So, it's, look, it's going to be interesting. Whatever whatever happens, we need to probably do something different. Um, so, whether one year was too uh, was too late and now two years out is, is the right model, um, we'll, we'll find out. But you'd wonder, is there any real thought process behind it or is it just Johnny, Johnny has decided that that's the best way to go? And, and in fairness, he has such power in that group. Um, you know, he can drive that through and, and, and make it happen. So, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't question that, but it's just interesting, as I said, based on what Joe Schmidt. We obviously didn't hear much about the World Cup review, um, just a few sound bites from, um, from David Nusifora, but from Joe Schmidt's point of view, uh, he certainly felt that's a change he made that potentially, you know, um, unstabilised the the group or the project. Maybe we've actually made made so big a deal out of this World Cup cycle notion and it's actually all just nonsense. And you do the South Africa thing of just completely bottom out two years out from the tournament and just pick yourselves up and go from there. 
maybe we've completely overcomplicated all this. Yeah, we don't have a Razzie. We don't have a Razzie <laughs> to come in and, and save us. Uh, and we don't have we don't have you know fourteen or fifteen world class players playing outside the country. So um, yeah, I don't think look. No one would copy South Africa's model for sure. Uh, it worked for them, and credit to them. But I think I think Wales. So uh, uh, like I was in Wales for their World Cup cycle, um, or part of it, and they certainly had uh, a way of preparing for it that, that Gatland had had tried and tested, obviously failed with Ireland back in Lons, um, but he adapted it over over the course of those whatever four World Cups um since then and you know got them to a semi-final and, and they were you know very close to beating South Africa in, in a semi-final when they were punch drunk with, with fatigue and injury. So um I think it is okay to Eddie Jones had a very clear philosophy around what they saw as being a World Cup cycle and okay, it came up short in a final, but um, you know, they were closer than we were. So I don't think there's any harm in having a plan. Um, it's just as long as it makes sense. <laughs> we are running out of time. I do want to speak about the the big change in the women's game because Adam Griggs is going to be departing at the end of the, the upcoming uh, test matches this November. And Greg McWilliams, an old coach of yours, Fiona, is going to be coming back in. What can you what can you tell us about Greg McWilliams? Obviously he's got a pretty good reputation based on what he would have done with with Philip Doyle down the years and he's gone on and kind of bettered his career and now he's going to come back all over again yeah I, like I've I've always been a massive fan of Greg I suppose when I was in the women's game um he's probably one of the the first coaches that brought in really examining detail around things you could be sitting on a bus this is the norm now but you could be sitting on a bus back then and he'd bring up your laptop and it could be a uh, where your foot was and cleaning out a rock you know he really examined the little things in the catch pass under pressure stuff like that he went into real detail at the time and it served us well when we went to that world cup and we played the the all blacks i believe he was pulling the strings massively behind that he had us sharp and ready to go um along with the other coaching staff so i'm really ex- really excited for for him to come in and and work with the girls for me watching the girls over the the last few times as well i, I spoke about that catch pass it just under pressure it wasn't there and that's the skills under pressure was was gone out the window when they were under fatigue and everything so I, I think he'll really bring an improvement in that area and obviously he offers a lot of experience having gone to America as well and coached over there so it's exciting times yeah and like as we know obviously there are a lot of long-term issues that have to be sorted out before Ireland can be back you know competing with the with the better teams yeah. in the world all over again but in terms of the short term is there scope for a pretty decent improvement over the next let's say 12 24 months definitely i mean that's that's the thing about it is the players are there we you know like a lot of talk has gone about outside factors and that that is it They're, that's involved in it but the players were there and the players underperformed and watching them week in week out um in ail level playing with monster connacht leinster which, whichever what i saw and showed there was very very different to to the players i've seen enjoying the rugby so i definitely think he'll bring a bit of ba- bit of that back in and we'll see we'll see a far more exciting irish team Bernard, is Greg someone you've encountered a lot down the years? Yeah, no, I know him very well. Um, he was the, just finished being director of rugby uh, in Michaels, St. Michaels when uh, when I coached there before I went to France um, and I've kept in touch. Um, would have spoken quite a bit when he was in um, in the US. Uh, he's been doing some consultancy for world rugby in terms of, I think it's coaching uh, coaches, tier two country uh, countries coaches. Mm-hmm. And... I think it's the perfect appointment, to be honest. I think he cares about it um, deeply. He's, he understands it. He's, um, you know, he has a good relationship with the players who brought success to, to Irish women's rugby. Uh, I'm sure he'll tap back into, into their passion and expertise. And I think he understands as well that the, the, the solution is in the 15s game, not the sevens game. Uh, and unfortunately, for, uh, that's, that's been a strategy that's been driven uh, for the last seven or eight years and we've been promised uh, we could be brilliant at both and, and um, that hasn't happened so I would like to I would like to believe or hope that he he has you know made that clear in terms of accepting the job that he can make the, the changes or or support the domestic game uh, properly so that we can get back to the, to the level that we were at at, at 15s um, so yeah really positive a big big step up I think a big improvement yeah, and very best of luck to him. We are 
pretty much just out of time. Wes, I know you did want to mention the USA bidding for the Rugby World Cup and well, they're bidding for the one of the women's rugby world cups and they're bidding for potentially two of the of the men's tournaments as well. I think they're saying 2031 is the the one they're most likely to be going all in on. Looking forward to that, yeah. They're gonna do it. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll try and get down on the uh, the accredited <laughs> list for that one if it happens. But um, Vegas, Vegas, ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I just have no idea how they're gonna fund this. Um, uh, Pri- like, private private equity has been brought up a couple of times from what I've seen, which raises a few red flags. It's raising a few red flags, and it's like I don't know. Do USA Rugby have the ability to go and source that, or does this become a, a world rugby sourcing private equity thing? Like until. It could have changed now, but I, I know two, three years ago, like, for example, a player going to play with a, an Eagles 18s, 19s, 20s team would have to pay their own way um, from, say, Texas to they might be playing. They might have a camp in Canada where they play their Canadian counterparts at the end of the week. They'd have to pay their flight and their board. That's the kind of level of funding issues you're at with that organization. They declared bankruptcy not too long ago, like... The, like it's always been the white whale for world rugby to capture this American market, and it makes loads of sense. But you know, I, I, I hope the the detail of it is is um, matches the kind of fantasy, so to speak. Certainly does. Very quickly, guys, what would your thoughts on it be? Is it a bit of a stretch given where they are on the pitch? Um, no, I don't think it is because. Um... Look how how much Japan improved um, in that. Obviously, from the uh, the England World Cup 2015, um, that was the, that was their big improvement. But then they kicked on again for the home World Cup. So um, as long as it's far enough out, I think they they can um, they can improve. Obviously, but if, the if they were but if they were to do this, do they have to pretty much do they have to kind of match the resources they're putting into a World Cup bid with what they're putting in on the pitch as well, and what yeah, they're they, and what they're giving to the team. Look, I think the problem is is that that game against the All Blacks, the it was purely domestic players because it was outside the window, um, so they're not as bad as that, but they have a long way to go. Um, they are putting money into the domestic game through this MLR, um, and not, there's not much link up between USA Rugby no. and the MLR, though. It's, it's, no, it's there's not. Pretty there's, independent. Not there's, there's a lot of foreign players in it, but at least there's some um, sort of a domestic pro game now that they could. Uh, make stronger over uh, over a five or six year period, um, but I think they probably do need. Look at I think America people have talked about it for so long. They maybe need that home World Cup to um, get everybody on the same page and to get something that's uh, a lasting improvement. I mean, it's very worrying for North American rugby. Canada obviously haven't qualified for the World Cup, um, losing to, to Chile in a playoff, and USA have to qualify for one next year through. Um, through playing Chile, actually, so it's they, you know, to, to lose two countries that you know historically have been in every World Cup and and not see them prosper or see them continue to decline would be um, a, a very sad state of affairs. Well, it's great to see the South American teams developing. I think from a, a World Rugby point of view, or they'll just want guaranteed uh, revenue from that World Cup. That's going to be the key. So maybe that's where the, the private equity comes in, where World Cup where World Rugby get promised X amount and it's, it's private equity will take the risk on it. Um, but yeah, I, I think it'd be a positive, to be honest. All right. Well, we're completely out of time. We'll leave it there. Bernard Jackman, Fiona Hayes and Wes Liddy, thanks a million for joining us. Hugh Cahill, we presume, is going to be back next week. That's been the uh, RTE Rugby Podcast. Thanks a million for listening. The RTE Rugby Podcast, sponsored by Canterbury. See the new Irish men and women's rugby jerseys at canterbury.com. 